Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Last week's gospel was Jesus delivering part of his Sermon on the Mount. And that gospel passage started with Jesus saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is the law of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, the Torah. Indeed, we think that of this extreme law code as Pharisaical, right? Yet in Deuteronomy, the law is summarized in just two sentences. And Jesus quotes those sentences when he summarizes the law also. We also quote Jesus on this point every week in our liturgy. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We also hear Jesus say that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Yet during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus appears to deliver a new law in a series of statements following the pattern, you have heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. For example, you've heard it was said of old, you shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And even though it would have been completely appropriate because the word of God delivered the law to Moses, Jesus didn't say God said or I said of all, but instead you have heard it was said of all. That is, you heard something. You heard something that your mind was willing to hear. You heard me say something the first time, but I'm going to say it again because now you're ready to hear it more deeply, ready to see what I actually was trying to tell you thousands of years ago, but now in its fullness. We see that this new law, or shall we say a deeper understanding of the law, focuses on what's going on in our heart. Wishing our neighbor dead is murder. Lusting after our neighbor's wife is adultery, etc. And this is what the scribes and Pharisees lacked, as Jesus would say to them over and over and over again. You have the external appearance, but inside you're dead. We get a hint of the importance of the heart in the 10th commandment. The prohibition against coveting, wanting something you don't have. That's a crime of the heart, and a very serious one indeed. And so anyone who tells you that the Ten Commandments are just like any other ancient law code are seriously mistaken, because the Ten Commandments have the only thought crime that I know of, because coveting is a law that can only be enforced by God. So God had written this key principle on the tablets of stone, but over time and in the rest of the law, they weren't really at the stage to hear it. And let's remember again that An eye for an eye was mercy at the time the law was made when compared to the excessively imbalanced responses. For example, murdering an entire clan for one man's crime was prevalent at the time. The need for and challenge of transforming the heart is encapsulated in the young man who comes to Jesus asking, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And in that story, what what does Jesus say to the man? He says, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. When the man asks which ones, Jesus starts rattling off the Ten Commandments, to which the man responds, I've kept all of these, what do I still like? And Jesus, tacitly acknowledging that he really has kept the commandments, said to him, 
If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Jesus says to be perfect, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says in so many words to that young rich man what I like to call the platinum rule. Do unto others as God does to others. God gives it all, everything, even his own son over to death in order that the poor, not just in monetary terms, but in spiritual terms, will be saved. Likely when I tell you that you're held to a higher standard as Christians than even the Pharisees, you may feel a bit like that rich young man. It's not easy to hear that you don't just have to love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but also host the living Spirit of God in your heart. Feed on the very divine in the Eucharist and love your neighbor as God loves them. And perhaps it seems so impossible that you might leave here feeling sorrowful like that rich young man. Yet our calling is for us to constantly become more like God. Indeed, we're to work with God to restore ourselves to the likeness of God bestowed upon us by God in the creation. It's a tall task, and it can seem daunting. I feel like I'm starting over all too frequently, but if I'm really honest, those startovers are almost always at least a few steps closer to God than I was when I started. If you don't feel that way, also don't despair, but don't lose sight of the goal either, to become nothing less than God himself. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying we literally become God by nature, but instead that we can, by God's grace, fully partake in the divine nature, as St. Peter says in his second epistle. But just as we couldn't hear all the words on Sinai, we are still struggling to accept the fullness of God. It seems an impossible task, but with God, all things are possible. Indeed, right after Jesus speaks with the rich young man, after the disciples ask, who then can be saved? Not skipping a beat, Jesus looks at them and says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. We must give up any sense that we can achieve this all on our own. It is a certain way, it's a certain way to fail. Instead, we must trust in God and cooperate with his will. If we're willing to truly follow him, he is coming after us. He's not satisfied with walking with us in the garden. And despite all our disobedience, all the trouble we got ourselves into, he pursues us, chases us. Not so that we could just walk with him in the garden again, but so that he could walk in us and we in him in the here and now. And that brings us to today's lectionary gospel, where we hear another story of something that our narrow minds would say was impossible. Feeding 4,000 people in the desert with seven loaves and a few small fishes. In fact, we hear an echo of their question to Jesus after he spoke to the rich young man. The disciples ask, how can one, that is, how can any man, any person, feed these men with bread here in the desert? And at, at this time, Jesus does not answer with words, but with actions. With God, anything is possible. In fact, this story is here in the gospel just after the new law was delivered in the Sermon on the Mount last week because Matthew's gospel parallels the book of Exodus. And after Sinai, where the law was delivered, the people wander in the wilderness and are fed by God with the manna, right? And here the people are again in the wilderness and being fed by God. But the differences between the stories are even more revealing. In Exodus 16, when the parallel sequence of events is described in the Old Testament, the people are murmuring against Moses and Aaron, and the Lord himself saying, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full. Here in the feeding of the 4,000, the people are not murmuring. They're not even saying that they're hungry. 
Instead, they're feasting on the words of Jesus, the word of God, just as we are commanded not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They chose freely to come out into the desert and listen to Jesus versus reluctantly following Moses, who finally riled up Pharaoh enough to let them go. Yet God recognizes and he promises us that being human beings, we need physical sustenance too. But the feeding of the 4,000 in the wilderness shows the right priority. They trust in God and worry about their spiritual well-being before their physical. The Israelites were, in contrast, too busy worrying about their physical well-being to recognize the salvation that God had brought them. Moreover, God feeds the people not only with bread, but with fish, paralleling an episode from Numbers 11, where the people are not satisfied with the manna, the bread of God provided to them in the desert, and start to complain again, oh, that we had meat to eat. Comparing yet again their physical, their current physical situation to their prior life in Egypt. But here in the feeding of the 4,000, not only does God give the people bread, but fish on top of it to eat when they hadn't even asked for it. And God gives us more than we ask when we get our priorities straight. Finally, most of this crowd is probably Gentile because we're told right before this event that Jesus is in the region of the Decapolis where he healed the man who is deaf and mute. The Jews were chosen by God they had every manner of spiritual wonders given to them by God, but they were still more worried about their physical well-being. Here the Gentiles were hungry, hungry for God, hungry for the gospel instead of their physical well-being. And this isn't meant to be a Jew versus Gentile thing. It's just meant to tell us instead how this message is for all humankind. So are we listening? Are we, or are we only hearing what we want to hear? How many of us put our secular concerns first, saying we don't have time to pray, don't have time to read the Bible, don't have time to come to church to worship God, no time for being good to our neighbors? Yet we all know we have time for what's important to us. I'm not arguing that you neglect your kids, quit your job. They're monasteries for that. And we cannot and should not all be monks. And I've acknowledged many times that we do indeed have physical needs. But I've also acknowledged that God knows that we do. It's merely a taxis in Greek, an ordering of your life that you, I want you to think about. How can you put God first in your life this week? What can you do to show that you trust in God more than your stuff? And one way is to risk some of your stuff, like Jesus asked the young, rich young man to do to become perfect. What physical pleasure that may even be sinful can we give up this week to feed instead on something holy, perfect, and good? What can point us in the right direction? With all the dark forces around us in the world, we need our compasses to align with the will of God and follow what may be a meandering path closer to him each and every day. Sometimes it may seem impossible, but today's gospel reminds us that the seemingly impossible is possible when we feast on the word of God instead of our earthly desires. Because when we do, God will provide abundance and our cup will run over, not just spiritually, but physically as well. And in case you think I'm preaching some sort of prosperity gospel here, I'll remind you that the abundance in the gospel was just enough that everyone was satisfied, not that they stuffed themselves and stored up baskets for later. Yet when God does grant us his abundance, as he has spiritually, and in the context of our world economy materialistically as well, let us be good stewards of that and share it with the poor as he commands the young rich man to do. For us to be like God himself, withholding nothing. And as I constantly remind you, my brothers and sisters, poor does not just mean the homeless man or woman on the street. All of us are poor, often more so in spirit than in riches. 
and we must feed people around us and let God multiply it. We should not worry what people will do with what we give, for as we know, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Or as Walter Hooper recalled, as he and his friend C.S. Lewis walked to an Inklings meeting, that Lewis gave some money to a street beggar and Hooper made his usual objection, won't he just spend it on drink? And Lewis answered, yes, but if I kept it, so would I. So when we give freely of our worldly and spiritual possessions, we not only show our love for our neighbor, but our love for God and for ourselves. And when we have less to spend on our own intemperance, when we give kindness in response to anger, when we help our neighbor instead of serving ourselves, we are guarding, healing, and training our souls for the difficult battle of this world. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.